Our scripture today is from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and came to her, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to the house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwells in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. The word of the Lord. So, so far, we, we, this series is called After God's Own Heart. And up to this point, everything's been about kind of the rise of David. David coming from nowhere and emerging on the scene as God's anointed king and, and, and what it means to live with, with a true heart before God. And we've seen this in David. We've, we've seen how he lives with faith, how he lives with courage, uh, how he looks out for the least and the lost, how he shows loyal love even towards his enemies. And these are all things, when, when we're hearing about the story of David, we can sort of draw, easily draw a line. Okay, David, Jesus. David, Jesus. It's, it's all very easy. It's like those connect-the-dot drawings that you used to do when you were a little kid. One, two, three, four. Connecting the dots is easy in this instance. But this week is the week where everything changes. And in fact, some scholars, when they're dividing sort of the story of David in the Bible, they say everything up 
through chapter 11. We could say David under God's blessing. That's the overarching theme we could put for what's happening. And then from here on out, from chapter 11 on out until David's death, we could call it David under God's curse. So this is the beginning of the end for David. In our scripture this morning, it's the disastrous, catastrophic fall of David. And it's one of the most famous stories in scripture. I think outside of the Garden of Eden, this is the most famous sin in the Bible. And just like that sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, uh, this story isn't just about David's sin. But it's a story where it's easy and it's essential that we see ourselves in it as well. And it's, it's, it's troubling for many reasons. And not the least of which is, how can we still believe in a David who is a king, a man after God's own heart, after reading this? After David, our hero, falls, how can we see him as any better or any different than Saul, the king who he's replaced? Is there any hope for a good and righteous leader? Or are all of them, even the best of them, doomed to corruption and failure? If there's no hope for David, for God's anointed one, what hope is there for us? So these are just some of the texts that we, uh, the questions that we bring to the text this morning. And so we're going to look at two different aspects of this passage this morning. And I'm calling it uh, La Fair Bathsheba, because that's a double entendre. So... Of course, we hear the word affair, and we think about infidelity and adultery, and that's definitely something that's happening in this passage. But in French, l'affaire is also another way to say scandal. That's really a better translation. The Bathsheba scandal. Because there's so much more that's going on in this passage than adultery. So much more. And so it's sort of like how we call everything gate, you know, water, gate, Pizza gate, you know, all the gates get gates after them. The French call everything an, an affair, l'affaire, the scandal. And it's such a scandal that we're going to spend two weeks looking at it. But there's two aspects of this, this story, this scandal, this affair that we're going to look at this morning. And first is, what does it teach us? The crime. And so what does that teach us about why we fall into sin? And the second is the cover-up. And what that teaches us about the effects of sin. So the, the, the crime and the why of sin and the cover-up and the effects of sin. So first, let's get to the crime and show, what it shows us and teaches us about why we fall into sin. And so here's the context for our passage. This is how we sort of got where we are, kind of in the immediate context. So last week, we, I did a sermon uh, on chapter 9. And so David is he's at the height almost. He's just shown Hesed. He's shown loyal love to this guy named Mephibosheth, who was the grandson of Saul, who was David's enemy. And then in chapter 10, David tries to um, show the same kind of loyal love to uh, the, the son of an ally, a foreign king. And so David says, I want to show Hesed to you. And this, this, this foreign king says, no, no, thank you. He's the head of the Ammonites. And so they go to war. And David and his troops are victorious. But then winter comes, and so the heavy rains came, and so the season for war was over. You can't fight when it's all muddy everywhere. And so everyone goes home, and David and his armies go, well, we're just going to have to wait until next spring 
to finish what the Ammonites have started. And chapter 11 begins with these words, and and they seem so innocuous. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Right? This sounds like just sort of an introduction. A little one-verse report and summary of, of, of where we are. But in this one verse, we see the seeds of David's downfall. So what time of year is it? It's the time when kings go forth to do battle. And what does David do? He sends. He sends his general Joab. He sends all of Joab's servants. He sends all the armies of Israel. And this verb to send, it's going to do a lot of work in this chapter. And and the more David sends, the worse things are going to get. While David is sending, he remains in Jerusalem. It says he remained in Jerusalem. But the verb for remain is the same verb for to sit. So David sends, everyone else goes out to do battle, and David sits at home. David, the great, mighty, brave warrior king, sends his armies to the front where he sits, while he sits at home in Jerusalem. And so right here we we, we see something crucial that we can't miss, that one of the ways that we fall into sin, one of the whys of how we fall into sin is, is we begin to separate power from moral responsibility. We detach ourselves more and more from the consequences of our actions, focusing more on what we can do rather than asking what we should do, what we ought to be doing. Power without moral responsibility is an incredibly dangerous thing. It's a trap into which we all fall. David sends his troops to this battle and he stays behind in his palatial palace that he has built for himself in Jerusalem. And then the text tells us, late one afternoon, David arose from his couch, which is his bed, and went for a walk on the palace roof. And this is not a very flattering portrait of David. It shows him as kind of a, the kind of king who stays in bed until the middle of the afternoon. He's like a lazy teenager. And so during this afternoon promenade, he spots a young woman bathing. He sees that she is beautiful. Actually, it says that the text says that she is tov. This is another connection to the Adam and Eve story. They, they saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, it was tov. It was good. It was beautiful. So David sees this woman and she is tov. She's good. She's beautiful. And so David sees her and he sends, that word again, after his servants to tell him, who is this woman who I see bathing? And the servant replies, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, we don't know Eliam and we don't know Uriah. But David certainly did. These were two of David's, what they called the mighty men. So these were the brave soldiers who, before David had been king, had given up everything, had risked everything for him to follow him, to be his most ardent and loyal and brave supporters. 
Right? When David wasn't king, they had been loyal to him. And they had served David selflessly and loyally for years. They had protected and defended David. And here they are at the front fighting another one of David's battles. And David stays home and he sees Eliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. And his response to this news of who Bathsheba is says, so David sent, there's that word again, David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. So David took Bathsheba because he could. Even though he knew that he shouldn't for 101 different reasons. But that's what powerful men do, isn't it? They take power without moral responsibility equals catastrophic sin. When we separate can from should, we know that we are not far from a fall from grace. Furthermore, what we learn about sin from David is that great sin is born from this sense of entitlement. Because why would we separate what I can do and what I should do? Those two things belong together. So what is it that, that sort of is the leverage that drives those two things apart? We, we see a few of them with David, but I think the biggest one is, is this sense of entitlement. I deserve this. I've earned it. It's hard not to imagine David thinking at this moment in his life, think how much I have sacrificed to be the king. I risked my life to fight Goliath when everyone else was was cowering. I risked my life serving Saul, even when he was hurling spears at me, trying to pin me to the wall. I didn't take revenge on him when I had my chance. I stayed my hand. I showed Hesed, loyal love, to Jonathan's son when it would have been easy for me to just finish him off and be done with the line of Saul forever. I brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem I've been a good man. I've been a good king. I've looked out for everyone else. Now it's time for me to do something for myself. Right? Sin comes when we divide what we can do from what we should do. And one of the main reasons we do that is because we feel like we are entitled. Like God or the universe owes us one. I think this plays out all the time. That's why people embezzle, right? They think, I've worked so hard for this business or this ministry or this organization. And I don't get paid enough or I don't get enough kudos. And so I deserve it. Or men, you know, they go like, I can go to that website. I'm not getting enough attention or affection at home. I, I, I deserve it. Or someone breaks a trust or a promise or a a, a commitment because they say, I've been good for so long. And what have I gotten in return for it? I deserve it. Right? The road to hell, the cliche is, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But it's probably populated with people saying the same thing. I deserve this. Entitlement is it's so insidious because it drives a wedge between what should never be separated, power and responsibility, between can and should. 
And this sense of entitlement, it's really just another manifestation of what is at the heart of all human rebellion against God, from Eden onward. This sense that somehow God isn't enough. God is not enough. And so God is, is, is holding out on us, or God's not giving us what we think is our due. We say subconsciously even, right? God, you're not coming through, and so I'm going to try to be like you and take what isn't mine. Because we believe that the reason that God isn't giving us what we want or not letting us have it is not for our own good, but because somehow God isn't good or gracious. We have this view of God as unloving or not generous, not giving up the goods. And it's so warped and twisted because that's the exact opposite of who God is. When we talk about, you know, what it means to mess up in the Bible. We use this word sin, and that word literally means missing the mark, like you're shooting an arrow or, or throwing a, a javelin or a spear. You miss the target. But there's another common way that Scripture talks about disobeying God, and it's this word transgression or, or trespass. And it means going, basically leaving the trail or going beyond your boundaries, going off-road, coloring outside the lines. And oftentimes we lionize people who go their own way, right? It's old-fashioned to talk about living within godly limits, right? For human conduct. But the danger when we try to blaze our own trail is that when we get lost, we have no idea how to get back to where we're supposed to be. G.K. Chesterton said, and this is one of my favorite quotes of his, he says, art is limitation. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. And the same is true of of the with God life. The essence of that life is the freedom that comes from the limitations that God has placed on us. And, And when we realize that those boundaries are there, there's so much freedom that comes from living within those. So much joy, so much wholeness, so much flourishing that happens. And not just for ourselves, but for everyone else. And so why do, we fall in, why do we fall into sin? Because we feel entitled to step outside those boundaries. And we don't care whether or not we should do it. We just think about, well, I can do it. And then we think, well, and also, I can get away with it. So that's the crime and, and the insight, I think, it gives us on why we fall into sin. But next comes the cover-up and how we see the effects of sin playing themselves out. And so... David takes Bathsheba, he lays with her, and she returns home. And later she sends word, that word again, she sends word, she sends news to David that she's pregnant. David hears this and he goes, oh, oh no, I'm trapped. Because he knows that when it becomes obvious that Bathsheba is expecting, everyone's going to know that it couldn't have been her husband Uriah because he's been at the front lines fighting. And so they'll start asking her questions. And those questions are going to lead them back to David. And everyone will know that this man who's who's God's anointed, the righteous king, the king after God's own heart, is a good-for-nothing adulterer. So that's when the wheels really start turning for David. Because he's done the crime, well now it's time for the cover-up. And the cliche is true. That the cover-up is so often worse than the crime. And we we see that nowhere more clearly than in this passage. 
So David, he recalls Uriah from the front. Ostensibly, he wants to get a report on the state of the battle. Hey, how's that fight going, Uriah? Oh. But his goal is really to have Uriah have a conjugal visit with his wife. So, bada bing, bada boom. He'll think the kid is his, and David's problems will magically go away. It's it's not a half-bad plan, if you're honest. But unfortunately for David, Uriah won't sleep with Bathsheba. He says, how can I enjoy the comforts of home when my men are sleeping in tents and when the ark of the Lord is in a tent on the battlefield? And as a last-ditch effort, David tries to get Uriah so drunk that he'll go home and sleep with Bathsheba. But again, it it doesn't work. It, It would almost be comical if it weren't so cynical and depraved and depressing. Right? Uriah drunk is more righteous than David stone cold sober. So here we see one of the first effects of sin, that it it quickly moves beyond our ability to control it and in its consequences. And in fact, one of the things that it does is it shatters our illusion of control. Right? We think we can control it, and then quickly we realize that actually it is controlling us. When we engage in sin, we're opening Pandora's box. And David, who he was so in control in verses 1 through 4 of our passage, right? He saw what he wanted, and he got what he wanted. Now is powerless to control the situation. And the more he tries to control things, the effects of his sin, the more entangled he becomes in this twisted web of transgressions. So what starts with the breaking of one commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, leads to the breaking of another, thou shalt not commit adultery, Which leads to the breaking of another. Thou shalt not bear false witness. David is attempting to deceive everyone all over the place. Which then leads to the breaking of another. Thou shalt not murder. So one effect of sin is that it just spirals beyond our control. Another effect of sin is that it makes us stupid. David sends Uriah back to the front lines. And it's a cruel, bitter irony that he sends him with a letter sealed in his hand that is essentially Uriah's death warrant, right? Well, Uriah carries his own death sentence back to the front lines. And, and David in that is instructing his general Joab to send Uriah into the thick, the fiercest part of the fighting, and then order everyone else to retreat so that Uriah is surrounded and killed. And when Joab receives David's instructions, he follows the spirit but not the letter, of what David tells him to do, because, frankly, David's plan is stupid. If Joab does what David instructs him to do, it will be so obvious that he is trying to get Uriah killed that it's going to have everyone asking more questions. And it's going to cause even more problems for David. See, Joab is what you might call a, a fixer. He's shrewd enough to know how to take care of David's problem without making it look like some desperate crime or plot against Uriah's life. David's plan is foolish because sin makes us stupid. And if you've ever had a season in your life where you've been engaged in something that's some habitual, unacknowledged, unrepentant you know, season of disobedience to God, you can look back at your life and say, why was I doing all of those stupid things that I was doing? 
Why did I do what I did? Why did I think what I thought? What? What? And sometimes it's hard to see this in ourselves, but, you know, we can see it in other people, especially people who say they know, they know what's right. They know God, but they aren't being faithful. They're disobeying him. And so they're constantly doing things that are just not smart, that don't make sense. Getting in bad relationships, making poor decisions. And you especially see this in people cutting themselves off from community and good, life-giving, soul-enriching things. Why would you do that? And you look at it, and it's frustrating, and you're just shaking your head, and it doesn't make any sense because you go, this is a smart person. Right? This is a decent person. They should know better, but sin makes us stupid. And when we're sinning, we're being dumb. We're, we're, we're not thinking clearly. All right, so the effects of sin are, are we lose control of it. It spirals beyond our ability to control it. It starts controlling us. It makes us stupid. And the last effect of sin we see in this story is that sin has this viral quality to it. Its impact spreads far beyond the person who commits it. And sin's power and its consequences, they, they mushroom and they infect and impact more and more people. So it starts with David alone, by himself, on his roof. Then ensnares Bathsheba. Then Uriah. Then Joab. And, 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 and at the end, not only is Uriah dead, but several other soldiers, too, who, who were thrown into the thick of the battle. They lost their lives to cover up David's crime. And so sin is like that. It, it never just stops. It, it spreads. That's why, a big, why it's a big deal. It's, it's contagious. We, we know that this is true uh, from our own lives and from the world. This is maybe the most obvious thing to say about the effect of sin is that it doesn't stop with one person. It never does, right? We think uh, just a, a week ago that horrific mass shooting at the Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, right? That one man's Sin has impacted literally thousands of lives, thousands of lives for the worse. And who knows who else will be inspired to take their, you know, AR-15 type weapon into another house of worship or school or mall and do the same thing. And all the sexual abuse and misconduct that's been in the news, Lord, have mercy. Think about the lives that have been harmed by that. By people doing what they could do rather than what they should do. And closer to home, we, we, we all live with the consequences of someone else's sin. Abuse, infidelity, neglect, betrayed, trust, broken homes, unkept promises, right? The, the destructive power, it spreads to us and engulfs us and then radiates from us. That's why David's story is so powerful, because it isn't just David's story, it's our story too. The story of how sin works in this world, and the terrible toll that it takes on every life that it touches. All right, so we've seen sin, and and where it comes from this place of entitlements, and and the sense of God God not being enough, and so we divorce our our sense of what we should do from, from what we can do. And how when we start sinning, we lose control, and it mushrooms, and it cascades, and it makes smart people stupid and good people bad. And there's a part two to this sermon that's coming next week. 
sort of where we get to the, well, what can we do about it question. One thing I want to leave you here understanding is that this bad news about sin, and it's bad, it's very bad, should awaken in us an understanding of how we need good news. We need someone to do something about this. If even David could fall from grace, we need someone greater than David to rescue us. So when faced with our own complicity and in and powerlessness before sin, it should cause us to understand in our heart of hearts that what this world needs, what we need is Jesus. Right? We need a Savior. That's what his name means, Savior. We need Jesus to forgive us and heal us and give us hope and strength and courage and fortitude to be a part of the solution instead of just part of the problem. Right? Sin breaks us and broken people break the world. But God wants to make us whole. And whole people heal the world through the power of the gospel. And so I just want to end with this word on, um, you know, if this is really true, if David's story is our story and things are really that bad, what should we do? How then shall we live? And I found this word um, on this passage from uh, uh, Tim Keller, who, if you get tired of me saying that name, if you aren't already, you will get tired of me saying that name. What he said on this passage is really helpful. He said, one of the implications of this passage is be killing sin or it will be killing you. And he says, sin is, it's like an acorn, right? It can start very, very small. But within that seed is the capacity to not just grow, you know, a great big oak tree, but an entire forest is contained in one tiny seed. So that tiny bit of pride or entitlement or envy or hatred or anger or superiority or chauvinism or lust or indifference or bitterness or greed... Within that seed contains the capacity for unleashing great brokenness in your life and in the world. You might not think it's so, but it's true. And here's something else that's true. It's easier to crush an acorn than it is to get rid of a forest. To switch metaphors, it's easier to extinguish one of those candles than to try to put out a fire in the church when the whole place is burning down. So, start killing sin when it's small. Don't feed it. Otherwise, it will get bigger. And it will start killing you. And that means, if you're entertaining these kind of things in, in your heart, right? Like, all these kind of desires or thoughts or, or fantasies. These can be revenge fantasies, right? I can't wait to see that person get hurt. Or fall or that group of people. These can be, you know, sexual fantasies. I, I can't wait to have that person. Greed fantasies, I can't wait to be wealthy beyond my wildest dreams so I never need to worry about money again. This, this fantasy of being a celebrity, I can't wait till people know who I am and they fawn over me because they know how great I am. Escapist fantasies, oh, I can't wait till I'm out of this job or this relationship or this marriage or until my kids are gone. Oh, kill those fantasies while they are small. And before they become big. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. As Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, and that's our human proclivity to, to sin in Paul's thought. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
In other words, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so how can we kill sin? Well, Paul says, by the power of the Spirit. And we say, as it works through the ordinary means of grace that God has provided for us. And so that's through the word, that's through the sacraments, that's through prayer, and that's with each other's help. Those are the means of grace. Those are the helps that God gives us. So that instead of incubating and spreading this sickness of sin, we become infected with and spread the good news of God's unstoppable, unbreakable, irreplaceable, never giving up, always and forever love for this world and all of its Davids. Only the son of David has the power to save us, Davids. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which is like a mirror. And God, in one sense, when we look in that mirror, we see the ugliness and the brokenness that is deep in our hearts. But God, we know that by your grace, when we look in that mirror, we also see who we are in your eyes. Women and men, sons and daughters, created in your image and likeness, whom Christ came into this world and gave everything he had to redeem and restore and release as a part of your project to make this world whole. And so, God, as we see the darkness and the ugliness, we pray that instead of of turning away in shame, we would turn away to you. We would turn to you in faith. Pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.